But the question is this. Can you get or be saved without understanding the full punishment of sin? That is, that you will go to hell if you don't accept Jesus. Can you be or get saved only on the basis that God loves you and you can be in heaven with him someday? So the question is, how much do you have to know about the consequences of sin and how much do you have to believe about the consequences of sin in order to be saved? Now, as I began going through this, it got a little trickier than I expected it to be. Uh, this really kind of takes you into the very basis of your, of your salvation, why God saved you and what we need to know and believe because, uh, in order to be saved. Uh, so I went back to the basics tonight. So some of this is probably very familiar to you, but I hope it's going to be uh, enlightening as we consider how much we need to know before we can trust Jesus Christ. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 10. I know these are familiar verses to you, but I'd kind of like you to look at them if you would. So Romans chapter 10, uh, very familiar verses. If you lead people to Jesus Christ, I'm sure somewhere on your path, uh, you take them to Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. And that's the verse I'd like to read with you. So Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Paul says here that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So what is necessary in order to be saved is heart belief. That is the how of salvation. If a person believes to whatever extent they're able to believe, uh, that belief is what saves them. The question is, what are they to believe? What do they have to have faith in in order to, uh, to be saved? And you'll notice again those verses I just read to you, they're to believe on the Lord Jesus. What's involved in that? Uh, what do we need to understand in order to believe on the Lord Jesus? Now, what Romans chapter 10 is all about, it's in the middle of chapters 9 through 11, and Paul is specifically addressing Jews in these three chapters. And these are Jews who have been under the law. So his purpose of writing these three chapters, and especially these verses I read to you, is not to do a long explanation about salvation. He is kind of going overview. This is the overview of salvation. Uh, his focus is on belief as opposed to works. Uh, run up to verse 5, Romans chapter 10 and verse 5, and notice it says there, For Moses described with the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. So he's making this comparison to what the Old Testament taught as opposed to what the New Testament taught. What is under the Old Covenant under Moses? What's under the New Covenant under Jesus Christ? So Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 are great verses to use to let people know that heart belief is required in order to be saved and to show them that is specifically what is required. It also lets you know that the, the person of our belief is the Lord Jesus. But those verses don't tell you everything that you need to know about salvation. That's only, again, an overview of what we need to know. So I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 now, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, is All that a person needs to do is to believe that Jesus Christ came onto this earth, that he lived and died here. Is that all they need to know? Uh, you'll witness to folks, and they'll say to you, when you tell them, you know, about, talk about salvation, they'll say to you, I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus, uh, as though that covers everything. I think we're going to find that doesn't cover everything. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 3. It says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Twice in that verse you see the focus of salvation. It is the gospel. That is the focus. And Paul says there, uh, if the gospel is hid... Those folks that it's hid from are lost. So in order to be saved, you've got to believe the gospel. So the next question, which I'm sure most of you already know, but I want to uh, take you to it, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the gospel? 
If that's what is to be to believed, and if that is hidden, a person can't get saved, then let's see what the gospel is all about. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Again, familiar verses, I'm sure, to most of you. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. So Paul says, I'm now going to give you the gospel. Here it is, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Part one of the gospel, Christ died for our sins. Part two, and that he was buried. Part three, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. What is the gospel? The gospel is the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what must be believed in order to be saved. That's what must be the focus of the belief. Now, there is a very negative part of the gospel, and the most negative part of the gospel that we must believe on, and that is the death of Jesus Christ. If a person is going to be saved, they have to believe on the death of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say that, we're not just believing on the fact that he died. We're not just believing in some historical fact, Jesus Christ died. The death of Jesus Christ identifies the purpose of our salvation. That is the focus of the purpose of salvation. What is the purpose of salvation? The purpose of salvation, contrary to many Baptist doctrines, the purpose of salvation is not to get you to heaven. That is the final fulfillment of our salvation. That is not the focus or the purpose of your salvation. The purpose of your salvation is to restore your fellowship with God. That's what you lost when Adam fell. Now, you lost heaven in the process. What you really lost, what Adam lost, was fellowship. When he sinned, he hid himself because he lost that fellowship. So the real purpose of our salvation is the fellowship, restoring fellowship with God, and that's the final fulfillment. So that's what God did when he sent Jesus Christ for us. Why did Jesus Christ die? Jesus Christ died because we were sinners. And he died to pay the price for our sin, and that's because that sin is what blocked our fellowship with him. So that sin had to be paid for and resolved so that we could have our fellowship restored with God again. So for a person to be saved, they first must understand why salvation is needed. They've got to know why they're getting saved in the first place. Otherwise, it's like going to the hospital for treatment and having no idea at all why you're there. Walk into the place, have no idea why you walked into the hospital, what needs treated. If a person is going to come to Jesus Christ for salvation, they must understand why they need salvation. And they need salvation because they're sinners. And that sin is going to keep them from having fellowship with God as it has throughout their lives up to that point. But in the same way, a person more than likely will not go to a hospital or to a doctor unless they also understand the seriousness of their condition. Not just that they're sick, but they're sick enough where there's going to be a a bad result to that. I'm not going to go to the hospital for a hangnail. There's not enough consequence to that. But I'm going to go to the hospital if there's cancer, because I know cancer can create uh, some, some bad results if I don't have it taken care of. So in addition to believing the the death of Jesus Christ, part of that means I've got to understand the consequences of the fact that I'm a sinner. I've got to know what happens to me because I'm a sinner. If sin remains, there is no fellowship with God now. But beyond that, there is also no fellowship with God for eternity. I lose fellowship forever. God's salvation came to save us from the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin, folks, is eternal death and separation from the fellowship with God. And that is forever. If you're not saved and you die, you never again have fellowship with God. You've lost it at that point. Death for a believer means eternity in the lake of fire. And in that lake of fire, uh, that place will never provide what God intended to restore. And that's fellowship with him. 
There is no fellowship with God in the lake of fire. It just doesn't happen. That is separation from God. The Bible tells us in two places, Psalm 1610 and also Acts 227, that when Jesus Christ died, he went to hell in our place. Jesus Christ went to hell for you. Get a hold of that. He didn't just die for you. He went to hell for you. And somehow, and I can't explain this to you, but only because Jesus Christ is eternal, when he went to hell, he suffered the eternity of that punishment for you in three days. Now, don't try to figure that out. You'll never work it out. But that's the truth. He paid the entire penalty for you when he went to that place. And because he went to that place and because he paid that price, therefore, I can have fellowship with God because he paid the price for me. And that understanding is what motivates a person to get their sin taken care of. It is okay to tell somebody when you're witnessing to them, if you don't trust Jesus Christ, you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. It's okay to say that. I know we shy away from that in this sensitive culture, but folks, that's the ultimate thing. If they don't know that, they won't have any real reason to get saved. They've got to know the end result, and the end result is complete and total separation from God in a place called the lake of fire. So they've got to confront the fact that Jesus Christ died because they're sinners, and they also need to confront the fact that he died to rescue them from an eternity in the lake of fire. Now, they may not understand all the nuances of that. Uh, they may not understand all the details of that. But they must understand the basics of that in order to believe the gospel for salvation. And when I begin to witness to somebody about Jesus Christ, I've got to give them the whole story. And I'm very uncomfortable sometimes, even with some of the tracts that we, that we pass out, because they give just enough to let, get people in without telling them the whole story. As though if we tell them about hell, it's going to turn them off somehow. <laughs> if they don't know about hell, folks, they're not going to know why they're getting saved in the first place. So here's the question. Rather, the answer to the question is yes. If a person is going to trust Jesus Christ as Savior, they need to know the whole story. And the whole story is Jesus Christ died for sinners, and that sin is what separates our fellowship from God. And if we don't get that sin taken care of, we're going to spend eternity in a place called the Lake of Fire apart from him forever. They need to know that, and as a witness to them, we need to make sure we let them know that as well. Go to James chapter 2. We have been working our way verse by verse through the uh, book of James, and we're in a very familiar passage tonight. In fact, we started there last week, a, a familiar passage of this book. Uh, most folks know uh, this passage uh, for, for whatever reason. And we said that at, last week as we got into this that there are actually uh, two different ways people interpret this passage of Scripture. We're looking at verses, actually, start, excuse me, starting in verse 9. Uh, no, not 9, going down through verse, uh, verse 14. Starting in verse 14, going down through verse 26. Uh, a couple of different doctrines have been established from this passage. And we looked last week at the one that talked about uh, some people interpret this passage to mean uh, that if a person has faith and no works, uh, they can't be saved. They're not saved. They've got to have faith plus have works after salvation in order to keep their salvation. Uh, they will say that works is a necessary part of salvation. And there's some elaborate explanations they develop in order to make that fit with Scripture. Now, most fundamental evangelical believers, Christians, don't subscribe to that. Some do, most don't. And that's because of what Paul teaches. Paul teaches how we obtain salvation. I gave you two verses, I think, on your outline, Romans 3.28 and also Galatians 2.16. Romans 3.28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So there he says there's no works needed. Galatians 2.16, Paul says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul repeats it over and over and over to get the picture. 
So that's what, what is, is conflicting with somebody believing that uh, works and faith are both necessary for salvation. Paul didn't teach that. But evangelical fundamental believers still have a problem with this passage because James seems to teach that that's needed, that you've got to have both. And so, therefore, they have to find a different way to interpret this that doesn't make works a part of salvation, but it's, at the same time accommodates what James is teaching here. Here's how they do it. They will interpret this passage to mean that faith is enough to save a person in God's eyes, but, it, but with no works attached to it, uh, that's an issue as far as in man's eyes. So God is satisfied with just faith. However, that faith is worthless to people uh, who are around that saved person if they never see any fruit from it. So in other words, that faith is dead to those who never see that believer uh, living and acting like a believer. That's how they interpret that. They say faith without works is dead. And look at verse 17, for example. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Drop down to verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? They interpret those verses to mean that the people that you live around and those who watch your life, if you're not showing the works that come with salvation, then that faith is dead to them. In their eyes, you're not justified, even though by faith in God's eyes you are. But since they see no fruit from your faith, they don't see you as justified. So what they say then is James is speaking here of justification before men. If that's what he's saying, then now Paul and James are in agreement because James is not saying you need faith for salvation in God's eyes. He's simply saying you need faith for salvation in man's eyes. And the problem is solved as far as they're concerned. Now, those two interpretations are the common ways to do it. Either that you need faith and works to be saved or faith is good in God's eyes, works are good in man's eyes, and that solves the problem. The issue is it brings up new issues to interpret those verses that way. Uh, and so we solve some problems and create new problems by interpreting it that way. Uh, the clear problem with the first interpretation is this. It doesn't agree with what Paul said. All throughout Scripture, Paul has said in all 13 letters to the, to the church that you do not need works as a part of salvation. Paul is very clear about that. Never once in the Paul's writing to the 13 churches did he ever say that works that your salvation was contingent upon your faith and your works. And I just read you two verses. We could read many, many more from Paul's writings that say the exact opposite, that you don't need anything but faith in order to be saved in this age. So James can't be teaching that works are a part of your salvation and aligned with the church. The problem with the second interpretation is simply this. In order to get that interpretation, you've got to add a whole lot to it. You've got to read a lot of things into it. You've got to reinterpret things in a lot of ways and infer a lot for what you think James is saying. Because if you just read it as it stands, verse 17 says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Wilt thou know, verse 20, O man, that, o vain man, that faith without works is dead. If you just read it that way, that's what he's saying. He's saying faith without works is useless. You've got to have faith and works in order for full salvation. That's what he's saying. So what he's saying is that faith is dead without works and can't do anything to save a person who's holding on to that faith. And the passage makes no reference whatsoever to that faith or those works being before men. He's talking about faith in salvation. So to get that, in, that uh, uh, interpretation, you've got to infer what he's saying there. Uh, have to read something into it. So the only way to interpret this thing properly, to my mind, is say that, that it refers to justification by faith plus works. If you just let it stand as it is, that's what he's saying. Now, here's what I also believe. And again, there are disagreements about this. I understand. Here's what I believe. I believe the way to interpret Scripture is to let it stand and don't add any of your own ideas to it. <laughs> let it say what it says. 
Let God give you the interpretation from Scripture as you choose to do that. Don't walk in saying, it can't say that because that's not what I believe. That's not what I've been taught. <laughs> Rather say, what does God's Word say? And then use Scripture to figure out if God's Word says that, what does that mean? How does it apply? Let it stand as it is. Otherwise, we begin to put our own ter- interpretation to it. And the Bible says this book is not of any private interpretation. Now, here's what I also believe. Uh, I believe that we, as we let God do that, there's something we need to also do. I think that Scripture makes no sense and is inconsistent uh, with itself unless we interpret it from a dispensational view. And what I mean is we rightly divide the Word of God, as Paul tells us to do in 2 Timothy 2.15. That's one of the reasons we're going through the book of James. This is a book you have to do that with if we're going to understand it in conjunction with what Paul says. What I mean is Scripture makes no sense if we, if we take the position, of the, I'm sorry, Scripture makes no sense unless we take the position that God has worked and is working and will work in the future in different ways in different periods of time. God in the past, God now, and God in the future works differently in different periods of time. So what do we know about the book of James? You should know some of these things already. We've talked about this more than once. Who is the book of James written to doctrinally? It's written to Jews. It's written to Jews. So what period of time does it apply to? It's got to apply to the time of the tribulation. Why is that? Because that is the next period of time where the Jews are the focus. The past Old Testament law is already done. Moses' time is already gone. It can't apply there. Yeah, he's talking now. He's got to be applying this to the tribulation time when uh, the Jews are the focus of what goes on there. How does a person get saved during the tribulation? Hold your hand in James, chapter, in James 2 and go to Revelation chapter 14. Go to Revelation chapter 14, and there's several verses that would give us this. I'm just going to give you this one tonight just to make the point. Uh, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, look at what God says here. Now, this is the Revelation chapter 14 is during the time of the tribulation. That's when it's written. That, that's the time period it sits in. And here's what God says. Here is the patience of the saints. So these are saved people. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Salvation in the tribulation is keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ, of faith of Jesus. So a person gets saved in the tribulation how? By faith and works. Faith in Jesus Christ and keeping the commandments. That means in the tribulation, faith without works is dead. Because in the tribulation, you need both. Uh, look, if you would, uh, let me find the verse for you. Look at verse 15 of, of James chapter 2. James 2.15, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. That means in the tribulation time, if those people aren't taking care of the, the, the naked and the destitute of daily food, and all they say is be, be in peace, be ye warmed and filled, they're not doing the works they need to do, and they're not saved at that point. That's the works they need to do. In the tribulation, faith is not enough. It's faith and works. There may has to be works attached to it that are evidence of that faith. Now, if we take that interpretation of James chapter 2, if that's how we interpret it, then everything, everything's fine. <laughs> Everything fits. We are, we are in conjunction with what Paul is saying because Paul is not speaking of the tribulation time. Paul is speaking of the church age. And therefore, God's working differently during this time. And at the same time, we don't have to worry about trying to 
coerce this passage to say something that it doesn't say because it, we don't need to do that. We don't have to force his words to say anything. When we come to a, a difficult, difficult passage in the word of God, we don't have to manipulate it. We don't have to interpret it to make it say what we want it to say or to force it to match what other parts of God's word say. Let the passage stand as it does and let God show you how that passage fits the system that he has set up. And if we will do that, 99.9% of the time, that book is going to up, open up to you in ways that it never has before. And it will all fit together because that book is the most consistent book you're ever going to find. And I realize it's written by many, many authors over a vast period of time, but because the Holy Spirit of God was behind it, that thing all fits together. Amen. As long as you take that view, rightly divide the Word of God. Now, with that, path, with that thought in mind, let's go back through this passage one more time, and let's see what James is saying to us. So, look at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath, not, hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And the answer to that question is No. <laughs> Because in the tribulation, that will not save them. It's not going to be enough. Look at verse 15. I read that to you a minute ago. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, be, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? I want to take you to a passage we looked at when we did our study in the book of Matthew. So hold your hand there in James and go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus Christ speaking here, and in the context of what James is saying, I'd like to look at this passage of Jesus Christ. So we're going to begin reading Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. We're not going to read the entire rest of the passage, but a few verses. Look at verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the, sheep from the, from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, watch now, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. So what's he saying there? He's saying uh, the brethren in this passage, first of all, let's talk about that. The brethren in this passage are Jews. And we've seen that in other places in Matthew. not going to go there tonight. But we know the brethren here, he's talking about Jews. So in the tribulation, how a person treats the Jews is an indication of how they treat Jesus Christ. If they treat the Jews badly, they're actually doing that to the Lord. And notice the result in verse 46 there. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous are the life eternal. To treat the destitute badly is treating Jesus Christ badly. And those works are not meet for salvation. And therefore, they wind up in the lake of fire in the tribulation. Not here. That passage has nothing at all to do with us. That passage is talking about Jews during the time of the tribulation. So go back to James chapter 2 now. 
verses 15 and 16, he says the same basic thing in much more concisely, but he says, says the same basic thing. Those two verses are talking to you about the, those in the tribulation and how they treat the Jews. If a person says all the right things, but there's no action behind it, their words mean nothing in the tribulation. Action, works are what are going to be judged during that time. Now, let me take a, just take a sidetrack for a minute because there is also a spiritual application to these two verses. Uh, what it says is, what we do means a lot more than what we say. What we do means a whole lot more than what we say. That's a clear principle there. Uh, we can talk about our concern about the poor and so forth and so on, the less fortunate, all we want to. Uh, we can say all we want to about how concerned we are for those who don't have the basic necessities. But if we don't do anything about it, if it's all talk and no action, it's worth nothing. Now, here's what's happened, I believe. I believe the liberals and the modernists have caused those of us who are evangelical and fundamental to shy away from this truth. Uh, but we, we are responsible to help those who are less fortunate. That's part of what we're to do. Now, we need to be careful how we do it. Uh, government programs uh, address the needs, but they also make the recipients of those benefits dependent on them. We're not to do that. <laughs> Uh, that only makes the problem worse as far as I'm concerned. We also must understand that our intent in helping the less fortunate is not simply to make their lives better here. If that's the only intent we have, we're way off track in this age. <laughs> Any help we provide to them must be done to get them what they really need, and that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Whatever you do is a vehicle to help them see their need of him. When we had our clothing ministry back in the day, every person who received clothing from us also received a tract at the minimum and usually a personal presentation of the gospel. That was built into that program because we just simply used those clothes as a vehicle to tell them about Jesus Christ. And I believe we need to do that. I think that's something that's important for the church to do. We can't shy away from that. The moderns have caused many of us to avoid helping folks, uh, the less fortunate, because we don't want to be associated with them. <laughs> But I think that's all wrong. We are expected by God to help those who need physical help, but at the same time, address their real need. And that's the spiritual need that they have. So, put feet to our words. Don't just talk about it, but actually do it. Otherwise, it'll simply be you warmed and filled, and that doesn't give anybody any help. Verse 17. Here's James' conclusion. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. If a person in the tribulation does not do something to help their brother or sister who is in need, they have a dead faith, and that faith will not get them to heaven. That faith is worthless in redeeming their soul in the tribulation. Not here. Not here. Verse 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee thy faith by my works. Here's a scene that James has now set up. There's a scene between two people living during the time of the tribulation. The one person says, I have faith but there's no works attached to it. The other person says, I have faith and demonstrate works that, that show that faith. And that challenge that is presented is this. Show me that you have faith, even though no works are being displayed. And James says, you can't do it during the time of the tribulation. If there's no works in the tribulation, there's no faith. During that seven-year period of judgment, a person can say they have faith all they want to, but it's a false claim unless there are works that are produced from that faith. You say, well, why wouldn't they just do the works? Because, you see, if you do the works during the tribulation, you get your head cut off. <laughs> and that's why folks are going to say, I've got a faith, but they're not going to do anything to show it because they don't want their heads cut off in the process. In that time, it's going to be a very different consequence to speak up and actually show your faith. Uh, and that's a, a, a deadly consequence. Notice the comparison he makes in verse 19. And this is a fascinating comparison he makes. 
He says, thou believest that there is one God. He's talking to this fellow who has faith and no works. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. You say you have faith. The devils also have faith. They believe God exists. If that's all we're dealing with in this time, he says, the devils do the same thing. The devils and Satan himself believe there's a God. Satan and his devils are not atheists. They don't do God's work. uh, And that's the comparison he's making here. But they do have faith. It is fascinating to me that we have these pinheads on this earth who profess loud and long there's no God. Uh, Those statements are contradicting what Satan's demons know. (laughs) They're contradicting the devil himself. That God doesn't exist. A atheist has less perception than does a satanic demon. <laughs> That's a lousy crowd to be in, if you ask me. Uh, did you know that Satan couldn't care less if a person believes in God? He couldn't care less. He has no concern about that whatsoever. Uh, Satan and his cohorts are not atheists. A person's belief in God doesn't affect him in the least. He just wants to make sure that a person doesn't do anything with that belief. I believe in God all you want to, Satan says. Just don't accept the claims of Jesus Christ. There's where the difference is. You'll see that all through the book of 1 John. Satan draws a line there. Uh, The way I see it, and this might be uh, something you don't agree with, and that's fine. The way I see it, the atheist is really not doing the work of the devil. Because the atheists are doing something the devil doesn't do. Uh, They're professing something that that Satan himself doesn't profess. The ones doing the work of the devil are groups like the Mormons who see Jesus Christ as just a prophet. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses who see him as a son of God and not the son of God. They're the ones doing the work of the devil, not, the, not, not those who are atheists. Uh, the atheists are kind of on a, in a cloud all by themselves. There are religious groups doing the work of the devil much more than are the atheists. Amen. And a religious group that is doing that work is much more deceptive and much more effective than is an atheist to do it. Uh, folks, there are people being fooled all, all day about, from the Mormons because the Mormons talk a good game. Folks, they're not Christians. Amen. They're not Christians. <laughs> Nor are the JWs Christians. They may talk like that and may have the lingo. They're not Christians. They don't believe in Jesus Christ like the Bible teaches him. Amen. Don't get lost in it. Don't get caught up in it. Don't think because they're good moral people, therefore, uh, they're okay. That doesn't count. Amen. Again, I've told you this many, many times. Years ago, I remember the Mormons had an ad on TV. Uh, if you wrote to them, they were going to send you a King James Bible. And they made clear to let you know it was going to be a King James Bible. Why were they doing that? Because they knew the King James Bible folks weren't Paying attention, we're going to get sucked in by it. Got to be very careful. Much more deceptive than is Satan. Satan's much more obvious than these guys are. And he loves the work they do. Uh, there's no way in the world to believe this. James is talking to New Testament Christians. There's just no way to believe it. What he says goes against everything that Paul taught in his 13 letters. The only place you find doctrine like this is in the book of, first part of the book of Acts and in Matthew and in the book of Hebrews. And those books are focused all on the Jews and not on church-age Gentiles. Now, uh, James, is in, cl- in conclusion, is going to focus on two examples of how faith and works are tied together. We'll go through this, and then we'll wrap it up for the evening. He, first of all, gives us the example of Abraham. Look at verse 21. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seeing thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him uh, for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Uh, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, he's taking an Old Testament character because he's talking to Jews here during the time of the tribulation. And so he takes an Old Testament character. And he says there that the... 
he had righteousness imputed to him. However, not at the time. I want to have you, I'm going to read to you Genesis chapter 15, verse 4. Uh, it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, speaking of Abraham, saying, uh, This shall be, not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. God begins the process of imputing righteousness to, Mo, to, to uh, Abraham or putting righteousness in Mo, Abraham's account when he believed God regarding Sarah having a baby and that baby being the, the path by which God is going to bless all nations. Amen. That's when that imputation began. But from what we read here in James, it didn't conclude until Genesis chapter 22 when, when he placed his son on the altar and showed that kind of faith in what God told him to do. Abraham was not justified by faith alone. He was justified by faith and also by works, uh, doing that action of putting his son on the altar. At that moment, he was fully justified. Uh, righteousness was imputed to him at that time. Uh, go to Romans chapter 4. Go back to Romans chapter 4. And look at verse 1. Romans 4.1. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. What saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Now, it seems as though Paul is contradicting James here because he's making the point that salvation is by faith without works. And he uses Abraham again as an example of that. Here's what we need to understand about that. First of all, understand Paul is dealing with a completely different event in Abraham's life than James is. If you drop down to verse 11, you'll find that uh, Paul is talking about Abraham being given the sign of circumcision. James is talking about uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. So Abraham's salvation is a two-step process. Look at verse 4. It says he believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. Uh, flip over to uh, James and look at verse 23 again. Hold your hand there in Romans, but go back to James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So here's the scripture saying. When Abraham accepted circumcision as God's sign, when he accepted the fact that his son was going to be the path by which God would bless all nations, God saw that faith at that moment and took note of him as a righteous man. He showed that he was a man with the right kind of faith. And then in Genesis chapter 22, in the sacrifice of Isaac, he is fully justified in that he now did works that showed that faith that he had not done up to that point. So at that point, God's righteousness was planted or placed into Abraham's account because not only did he have the faith to believe, but he also had works to show the faith that he had. Abraham's justification came by faith. That was a starting point. But the complete justification came after he showed a willingness to offer his son Isaac upon the altar. Don't get lost in the believing that what Paul is saying is that Abraham's salvation is like your salvation. Abraham's salvation is nothing like your salvation. And I'll tell you some differences. The main difference is your salvation is not a two-step process. <laughs> when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, you get all of God's righteousness at that moment. And you are totally righteous before God at that moment. <laughs> As an eight-year-old boy, when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, the second I placed faith in Jesus Christ, at that very second, I got all of God's righteousness. Amen. It was all mine. 
That was imputed to me at that moment. It was not a two-step process. I didn't have to wait till somewhere down the road and do something else to get it. I got it at the moment. Abraham, it wasn't that way, as we have seen. Number two, Abraham was not a son of God. You are a son of God. Abraham was not spiritually circumcised. You are spiritually circumcised. Abraham's soul, when he died, did not go to the third heaven. Yours will. Abraham's sins were not taken away. Ours were. Abraham was not adopted into the family of God. You are. Abraham never experienced a new birth. You have. So his salvation is completely different from yours. That is not what Paul is trying to say. What Paul is saying is Abraham placed faith in God, and that was the starting point of his salvation, just like you did. He had to do something else. You have to do nothing else. Uh, Place faith in God, and you're settled. Now, go back to James one more time and look at the other example he gives us. Look at verse 25. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way? He's talking back about the, uh, back what happened back in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab receives the spies that come from Israel who are there to assess the land and devise the best way to attack the city. And they told her that if she would help them when the time of the, the destruction came, she and her family would be saved. So she believed what the spies said, and then she did what they asked, him, asked her to do two-step process, believed and showed works that were evidence of that belief. It was not enough for Rahab simply to believe. Otherwise, that's all she would have had to do. But unless she helped them and did a specific work for them, added to that belief, she would be a victim of the attack and would lose her life. She was saved by faith and works. I'm going to have you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. We went through this when we did our study in Hebrews. I'm going to just go briefly through it with you again tonight. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, this is the great hall of fame of faith, and it truly is. But there's something we need to be aware of as we go through this. I want to read several verses of this thing to you, and I want you to see what's common in all the verses I read. Verse 4, first of all. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. Down to verse 7. But by faith, Noah, being warned of God of the things not, yet, uh, not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is of by faith. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whither he went. Uh, verse 17. Let me get there. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Uh, Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 27. By faith, speaking of Moses, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Now, what do you see going on in all those verses? (laughs) There's faith and they're doing something. They've got faith, and that's what the point is. However, every one of those things I read to you, they did something. And then God said they had faith, or that righteousness was counted to them. Every verse that I read to you, there's something, some action going on there. They did something with their faith. 
that action was accompanied, or that action rather accompanied their faith, or to put it in James' word, they had faith and they had works. But I repeat, every person in the passage I just read to you is an Old Testament saint, <laughs> not a New Testament saint. Not one of them is in the New Testament. And that's because in the New Testament, it all changed with the New Covenant. Uh, Jesus Christ did the work for us, and therefore we have no work to do. It's all taken care of. The demonstration of faith uh, is a good lesson to us, but doctrinally, we simply cannot use these folks in, in, in Hebrews 11 as examples unless we realize the faith is there, and that's our connection. But the works were a part of it, and we don't have any part of that. Now, go back to James one more time. We're going to wrap it up. I've said that twice now, haven't I? I really will. I promise. Before 930, I'll get you out of here. Verse 26. Here's the conclusion. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He says, just like a body lays there dead because the spirit's gone, in the same way in the tribulation time, that faith will be a dead faith unless there's works pumped into it. And those works will then be the life that that faith has and show that faith, and therefore God will accept it. Folks, that is not true of you and I. I'm going to read you two verses, and then, honestly, I'm going to close. <laughs> Ephesians 2.1. And hold on to your socks. It's going to blow them off if you're not careful. Ephesians 2.1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You are made alive because of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly Places in Christ Jesus. Folks, no dead faith is going to do that for you. The fact that you are sitting in heaven tonight, your body is still on earth, but God says you're as good as in heaven with the door shut, that's because you place faith in Jesus Christ, and that is a living faith, and that living faith has already got you in heaven. <laughs> you're just waiting for your body to catch up. Man. Only a living faith could accomplish that, and that's what you have tonight. Without any works attached to it, you've got a living faith because your faith is provided to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ keeps that faith alive and will as long as he's around and he's around forever. So Jesus Christ has imputed his righteousness to you and you will always, always, always be seen by God as as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. And because of that, your salvation is settled. Praise God for it. huh? Sand.